Welcome to the fifth episode of the Truth About Cars podcast. I am Tim Healy. I'm the managing editor of the Truth About Cars. Um, with me today are Matt Posky and Matthew Guy, our esteemed news contributors. Matt Posky is based in Michigan. I am based in Chicago. And Matthew Guy is the Canadian among us. Today we're talking about uh, best cars of 2007, the Ford Lightning, the Kia Sportage, and the F1 race that took place in Miami recently. We're going to go ahead and get Matthew K. Guy to start us off with some lightning conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've had the opportunity now to actually drive this thing. It's not vaporware like some of the other unnamed angular pickups that keep floating on the Internet. (laughs) (laughs) They're actually making this thing. And it's, it's such a relief to see something like this in the electric area because we know that that's where everything is going right like it or not like it or lump it as gearheads everything is going to be you know electric that's what that's what the powers that be have said and 775 foot pounds of torque in an f-150 is a lot (laughs) that's diesel power right and Mm -hmm. one of the things that i really liked about it is that when you climbed in it there was zero learning curve in terms of where things were. You get in it, and it's an F-150, which I think is a smart move by Ford because I'm a truck person, and sometimes we don't like change, man. <laughs> for better or for worse. I don't know about you guys in terms of some of your vehicles, but sometimes keeping things the same is all right, yeah? Oh, yeah, yeah, big time. Yeah. Plus, it's, it seems like um, just by nature of having a not kind of bizarro-looking electric truck – positions forward pretty well like the same people that are buying the Cybertruck are not going to buy the lightning and, no, and vice versa right. my take on the lightning having not driven it yet is the exterior looks uh are both kind of head turning with still staying with the familiarity of the f-150 so i think it's gonna be huge for ford i agree i agree and one of the big takeaways for me so so we drove they were all um extended range pickups that were there so they all had the 550 whatever horsepower and the 131 hour, 131 kilowatt hour battery pack and that gives you about 320 miles advertised but i was getting um if you trust the screen that's in front of you and this takes a bit of a shift in measurement you know because we're used to miles per gallon and you know whatever um whatever pun intended that was a bad dad joke i'm a dad i'm allowed to make those (laughs) (laughs) is there's um but there's a consumption um rating of kilowatt hours per mile and suddenly it's a lot easier to figure out how far you can go on a battery if you use that measure so that if you get say two kilowatt hours per mile and your battery is 131 kilowatts then okay so you get about 260 miles out of your battery pack no matter what it's rated for and that was about the average i got on a 100 mile drive um some of it was you know hard acceleration just trying the thing out um there was a stretch during stop and go traffic where i spiked to almost three it was like 2.8 kilowatt hours per mile so in order to get what ford is saying you'll get 320 miles you need to get 2.44 kilowatt hours per mile and that's improbable but not impossible you know what i'm saying doable but unlikely exactly just like normal everyday. yeah any no yeah any car you get you're like well it did say 35 on the sticker but that seems optimistic exactly mm-hmm. 
So in you know, in terms of more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Um, the steering was very quick for a truck, almost too quick. Um, but if you put it in tow haul mode, it, it tones down a little bit. And that was something we did too. They, they hooked us up to a 5,000 pound trailer and in one truck. And then in another, they hooked, they put 1500 pounds worth of, uh, plywood in the back. And I joked that 20, 20 sheets of, uh, three quarter inch plywood is uh, about the worth of the truck itself these days. <laughs> so I don't know how much they are down there. I mean, my God, that would be thousands of dollars of plywood. One question I have for you, actually for both, for both of you gentlemen is, um, do you guys think that the, the launch of the Lightning and then followed by Rivian and, and these other EV pickup trucks, and maybe not the Cybertruck, but the more the Lightning and, and the Rivian, might kind of help turn the tide towards EVs, particularly among rural customers and among working class customers who might not have considered an EV before. Uh, now they see that it might work really well in trucks and they might actually use it for work. Do you think that it might change how the market, the market is and might help boost EV penetration of the market? I would say big time. I mean, mm -hmm. just like, so I just, I moved a few months ago from New York out into the wilderness of Michigan and everybody I knew in New York was really into the sort of the angular, very modern design cars. But everyone I knew out here was like, nah, I don't like how they look. It's too different. I'm not interested. And uh, like Matt was saying, the fact that the the lightning is so similar to just a regular old um, F series, I think that's going to make a big difference. And for me too, like I I like a lot of the designs of some of the EVs from an exterior perspective, but I don't like this sort of austere, sterile interior that everybody's running with. I don't even mm -hmm. like Tesla interiors that much. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. But but if you just make it more like a regular car, I'm going to be you know much more interested. I'm still going to complain about all the tech stuff, like the big screens and stuff, no matter what. <laughs> but if it's laid out, you know, similarly, like buttons are retained, the controls are where I expect them, I'm probably going to be happier. Yeah, and that's actually, the interior thing's an interesting point, because a lot of these EVs, like you said, are kind of going like with a minimalist interior or some sort of thing like that. And then you've got Volkswagen using the haptic touch and the ID4, which is spread to some of the internal combustion engine cars as well, like the GTI and the Golf R. But, um, you know... I'm in the Kona EV this week, and the Kona EV has a fairly normal interior. I like the Kona outside EV. Of the, mm -hmm. Me too. It's actually not bad. Uh, bad little vehicle, but outside of the gauges being adjusted for EV, it's a completely standard Kona interior pretty much. I, I can't see any major differences. So I think that's kind of a nice trick. Is Instead of going for change for change's sake, just say this looks cool and you know we want to make it look cool, but there's no real uh, user the user experience kind of stinks, at least in this car. This car, the user experience doesn't change at all. In fact, if you didn't know it was an EV, you probably wouldn't know it was an EV based just on the interior. So I, that's a really good point that I think EVs in general, and especially the trucks like the Lightning, keeping a lot of other things the same makes the transition a lot easier. If people only have to worry about charging it and everything else is pretty much the same, I think that makes the transition a lot easier. Yeah, I agree. And one of the one, something else that was the same, you guys, was that the amount of range that you lose when towing or having a lot of payload is about the same percentage as what you lose in a gasoline-powered truck. So let's say if you usually get 20 miles per gallon out of an EcoBoost, 
unladen and then you end up getting about 12 or 13 while you're towing something that's you know in the ballpark 66 percent about two-thirds and that was about what i ended up getting you know indicated by this uh, by the screens on the truck about 1.3 kilowatt hours so that's that is interesting right because the losses was not as much as i'd expect but the big caveat of course is that you're starting from a much smaller um range right right um, if you can get 520 miles out of a tank of gas in an EcoBoost, you know, you're only going to get 300 probably at most out of a full battery on a Lightning. So 66% of 320 is a lot less than 66% of 520. But the percentages work out, and I was very pleased to experience that. Um, do you? This might be something you don't have in front of you, but do you know what the, I'm looking it up too, but do you know what the, the charging time was for DC fast charging on, the, um, on that bad boy? It was around 40-odd minutes to get it from near 41 minutes from 15% up to 80% okay. if you're for the extended range, and that's using DC fast charging, 150 kilowatts. Okay. So that's not great, but it's not, it's not bad, especially compared to everything else that's on the industry right now. Yeah, it's not awful, no, right? And it's still a lot longer than just pulling up to the pumps and absolutely. Right. But if you're going to stop and have a lunch or something like that, and that's going to be part of the EV lifestyle for a while until until they figure this out. Yeah, I've been, I've been beating that down like a broken record that you need once you need charging to be as fast and convenient as gas gasoline yeah. vehicles in order to get the that's going to really be what flips the market to EVs. And uh, just last night I was at uh, my lady friend's place. And I was trying to charge the. The Kona EV, I didn't really need to charge it, but I was, I'm like, well, I'll, they have, she has four charges in the parking garage. I'm like, well, while I'm here, I'll do it. Yeah. And I charged it the other night. One of the chargers worked just fine, but two of them last night would not charge the car at all. And I don't know if it was not talking to the, the cord wasn't talking to the, to the, to the, to the charger, whatever you call it, the charge point in the car, or I don't know if it was something to do with the, those chargers didn't work at all. I don't know, but you know, once you need charging to be a lot more reliable for people mm. to kind of shift that direction. Yeah, you do see every once in a while. Uh, I'll be at a hotel or a parking garage or something like that, and there'll be signs on the the charging stations more than you would hope, uh, saying that it's temporarily out of service or something like that. Which mm-hmm. wouldn't be if they were everywhere, it wouldn't be too bad of, of a deal. But like you guys were saying, it's just it, it's going to be a, a learning curve for some people, and the technology still has to has to come up to be directly comparable to the convenience of uh, uh, gasoline. But you don't get the smell, and mm-hmm. uh, if you're not a fan of the, of the smell of gasoline. <laughs> I've always so actually much- liked that smell, but even though it's not good for you. <laughs> yeah, I was trapped in my uh, car with it yesterday. I brought home a mower, so oh, uh, there you go. I loved it a lot until uh, last night, and I was like, oh, my God, I feel it's awful. lightheaded, yeah. <laughs> But that someone from an EV charging company um, told me not that long ago, just a couple of weeks ago, said we're moving from the installation to the customer service phase of our company now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was said with a wry grin, right? So yeah, right. Shouldn't so it be a little bit are... of both, honestly? What's that? Shouldn't it be a little bit of both? You would think so, right? But there was definitely, at least up in this neck of the woods, last year there were a lot of you know charging places being put in and they all worked and now a year later the stuff is breaking down right so the same thing up here too interesting 
Okay, gentlemen, it's time to take a quick break, and we're going to hop back in. We're going to actually do four segments instead of three today. We'll, get, we'll do, we just did the Lightning, the uh, first drive of the new Ford Lightning electric pickup truck, and then we're going to come back and talk Kia Sportage just a little bit, talk the F1 race in Miami for those who are into racing, uh, or, or those who are just checking out of, out of curiosity, which I think a lot of folks were, because most F1 races uh, are not at easy times to watch if you're in the States or Canada. We'll get more into that in just a few minutes, and then we will finish up with the best cars of 2007, which ought to be really interesting considering where the market was 15 years ago and where it is today. Welcome back to the TTAC Podcast. My name is Tim Healy. I'm the managing editor of thetruthaboutcars.com. That is ttac.com, T-T-A-C.com, or you can spell it all out, thetruthaboutcars.com. I'm here with Matthew K. Guy and Matt Posky, our news contributors. Matthew is based in eastern Canada. Matt Posky is based just outside of Detroit, and I am in the Chicagoland area myself. We are talking Ford Lightning, Kia Sportage, Formula One, and the best cars of 2007 today. So in the first segment, we talked about the new Ford Lightning, which uh, we sent Mr. Guy to drive down in, I believe it was San Antonio, a week or two ago. And then right before that, at the end of April, I was in California in the desert of Palm Springs, which is uh, a very lovely little town, driving the 2023 Kia Sportage. Now, that is not going to be nearly as exciting as the Lightning in terms of in terms of impact on the market. First of all, it's not an EV. <laughs> Second of all, it's not a truck. And third of all, it's not uh, a revered name like Lightning. Um, but it is still an important vehicle. It's Kia's entry in the 5C crossover class. It's, uh, I think the, this is either the fifth or sixth generation. It's definitely, I believe this is generation five. I have to double check that. But this is, um, you know, an important car for Kia because Kia is kind of a forgotten vehicle or the Sportage is kind of a forgotten vehicle in that segment. People think of the Honda CRV, the Toyota RAV4. Over the past year or two, the Bronco Sport has sort of made its made its name. You know, the Subaru, uh, I think the Forester would kind of be in that conversation as well, maybe the Outback. So, you know, Kia's kind of been a little bit overshadowed. And, and this, this new Sportage, they took some risks with the styling. It's definitely um, more aggressive styling and almost contradictory in some ways in, in, that, in that some lines kind of look rugged and masculine or or whatever designer speak you want to use. And then other lines look a little more softer, a little more curves. And it's sort of a, it's a little bit of a mess when you look at it in pictures. I, I do think the look works better in person. And I took some heat in our comment section for that because, but then again, I saw it in person. And most of the commenters I assume have not seen it in person yet. It, it did look, I don't want to say it was attractive in person. I don't want to go that far, but it was definitely not as, uh, disappointing or ugly as it was in pictures. It's definitely better looking. I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be worried about, oh my God, I'm driving an ugly car if I bought one. So it's definitely better looking in pictures, which I guess might be damning the faint praise, but that's what it is. And then, uh, you know, it's it's an interesting vehicle in that Kia is offering three different engine choices, uh, a hybrid, or I should say powertrain, but three different choices, a power or a hybrid, gas engine, and then a plug-in hybrid. The plug-in hybrid is not available yet for sale i believe it's going to be quarter two or quarter three so we drove the gas engine uh and then the hybrid 
And interestingly enough, the gas engine has a, a particular trim called the X-Pro trim, which is basically meant to be a mild off-roader to sort of compete with the Subaru Wilderness trims on the Forester and Outback. And basically, the X-Pro gets you a little more ground clearance. I think it's an extra inch and a half. And then uh, you get off-road tires, or all-season tires, excuse me, from BF Goodrich. And on the well, before we get into the X Pro itself, I should point out that the Sportage itself is, no matter what trim you buy, is larger than it was before. So it's about seven inches longer. Uh, three, I think wheelbase is like three. I don't have it in front of me, about three and a half inches longer. I should look it up. But um, overall, the Sportage is, you know, a lot bigger. And, and the biggest difference was the cargo space. I think about six cubic feet more. So in the, in the rear, with the seats up. So that's huge for those people who, who haul a lot of gear and luggage. Now, the way our drive worked out, we were supposed to be in the X-Pro half the day, do a bit of light off-roading at lunch, and then take the hybrid back to the hotel. Well, without getting too deep into inside baseball, there was some miscommunications or, or, or something like that where another journalist wanted to be in the hybrid all day or whatever. So I had very little time in the hybrid. The X-Pro, I can tell you, uh, with the gas engine, which is about 178 pound-feet of torque, was around town not bad to drive, and it, it didn't feel too pokey. In the mountains, it struggled a little more with the, with the lower torque. Um, putting it into sport mode helped, a little more throttle response. And I would also say that on the off-road itself, which was very mild, the, the X-Pro was fine, it, and it can do – you're not going to go rock crawling with it. You're not going to take it to an off-road park. But if your favorite campsite or fishing spot requires a little bit of effort to get to, the extra ground clearance is appreciated. The all-season tires help. And there there are some off-road features, a forward-facing camera. You can lock the all-wheel drive system. There's a hill descent control. Those things were really helpful. And I I know that they're not unusual among off-road vehicles these days. It's pretty standard par for the course. But the the X-Pro is somewhat useful if you're if you are a little bit outdoorsy as far as the hybrid goes i did get a chance to drive it a little bit and uh on the road with with, it has more torque and it's about 228 pound feet and i did floor it on kind of an empty street and it's pretty quick i didn't really get a chance to test its handling because i was on the urban grid but um the one curve i did hit i got the tires to squeal like 25 miles an hour so the tires give up the ghost pretty easy but the hybrid is definitely, it seemed like it'd be a fairly good choice for around town driving. I really wish Kia had given us a chance to drive gas engines that weren't X-Pro and, of course, the plug-in. But, you know, of the two trims they had on hand, the hybrid is definitely the city vehicle and the X-Pro is definitely the I'm going camping, whatever, you know, uh, vehicle. But I wanted to hear your guys' thoughts. I know, obviously, you two haven't driven the car yet, but I don't want to monologue for 15 more minutes on it. I want to hear your guys' two thoughts um, based on uh, based on styling and then based on, um, you know, pricing and where you think the vehicle fits in the the 5C crossover universe. Kia and Hyundai are kind of going bonkers with their styling. They're kind of doing a few different things, and uh, all of it's pretty bold. Like the Elantra, I actually like how the Elantra looks now. But anytime I ask someone, they're like, I, that's a hideous car. <laughs> and I started asking people um, about the Sportage, too. And I'm getting kind of the same responses. And I, I don't, I guess I don't really get it. it. It's not a pretty car, but it is interesting. Like, they're they're really doing something different. Um, I feel like even with BMW, like, it's really wild styling has 
uh, aged a little better than I, I thought it would, at least personally. Mm-hmm. So I think it looks it looks okay. It's it's at least interesting, but uh, yeah, I don't think I think I'm in the minority. I think most people are not super duper interested in having a uh, sort of indistinguishable like front, like the whole front of the car. It's like what exactly is like which part of this is what? The headlights are <laughs> way out to the side. Like, but it is interesting. Like it looks like a it looks like it's something that might have come from. The, the future as opposed to just you know yeah like one of those doctor who, like one of those doctor who monsters that has no face right with like the big <laughs> high cheekbones or yeah it looks it looks like something that maybe didn't come from this planet <laughs> or our reality but i mean it's cool that they're doing that kind of stuff and it is interesting and it really does help it uh stand apart including the rear which i always feel yeah. like i feel like the rear end of every kind of uh affordable segment Nobody does anything with it. They're just like, oh, we'll just make it exactly the same. But yeah. the the back of the Sportage, it's got that little kind of inward swoop that comes up towards the the taillights. Uh, the taillights are, you know, not super interesting, but you know, a little different. I'm not going to confuse it with a a Rogue or something. Exactly. And at least it looks, even if it does look like Voldemort, at least it looks like something, right? <laughs> yeah. So I think no, I think that's and it's attractively priced as Kia's always are, like twenty five nine ninety. For the base model front wheel drive, it goes up, up though, right? Isn't it like thirty six or seven? I think it's like yeah, thirty seven is the most expensive you can get. Okay. Probably the ones they had on the press drive, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every one I drove, I, the X Pro I drove was like thirty eight thousand, and that yeah, was okay. like an X Pro Prestige. That's the top line trim. Let me. I actually pulled up the stats here. I should have had it up earlier, and I thought I did, but I didn't because sometimes my brain works that way. But. Um, <laughs> I have it at 38 and change. I mean, it was 38, I think 38,155. Let me double check that. Here we go. 38,555, excuse me. And that includes the Prestige package and all-wheel drive. Uh, actually, all X-Pros, I believe, are all-wheel drive. And mm-hmm. it includes destination fee as well. And just for the for the stats head, for the stat heads out there while we're on the subject, I won't go too deep into the stats because all that stuff's easily available online. But just to be clear, the... the uh, Extension in length is up to it's seven to one inches. I'm sorry, it's um, yeah, it's seven point one inches longer. The Sportage over last generation. The ground clearance is also seven point one inches, which is a, a slight increase. It's six point. The old one was six point four uh, with front wheel, and now six point eight with all wheel. So now it's eight point three with all wheel drive and seven point one with front wheel. For those who think ground clearance matters. And then the other key stat is it's almost a nine. I was I said six earlier. I was wrong. It's almost a nine cubic foot increase in cargo area, and the wheelbase is three and three point four inches longer. So for those of you who want precise stats, those are the key numbers in terms of dimensions. And just to reiterate, the the Sportage is both front wheel drive and all wheel drive availability, and the gas engine is two point five liters, and the hybrid combines a turbo four of one point six. So those of you who really want to dig into the stats. Those kind of the key numbers right there. And it's all in our review at ttech.com. It's just a shameless plug there. But yeah, the um, just to circle back to the pricing discussion, the Sportage, you know, starts at like $25,000. That seems pretty reasonable. But once you start putting options on it, you're going to get into the mid-30s, high-30s. And like I said, the one I drove was 38000 And is it, you know, the question is, is that better than uh honda crv or toyota rav4 and i believe i don't have a, the numbers in front of me but the rav4 and crv similarly equipped are a little bit more money i think mm-hmm. slightly more money a bronco sport with the badlands trim 
is about a couple thousand dollars more. And so if you want to go off-roading, similarly, although the Badlands can do, I know from experience, the Badlands Broncos Sport can do more than the Kia Sportage. I take it to an off-road park, and it has skid plates. It has tow hooks. You can do some serious off-roading yeah. that you can't do in the Sportage. Whereas the Broncos Sport with a 1.5 three-cylinder probably can't do as much as the Sportage did. So you're kind of in a tweener spot here. Um, for those who actually care about you know, going off pavement. That's that's the question I kept coming back to. Is the Sportage at $38,000, $35,000, you know, whether well-equipped or fully loaded, is it better than the RAV4? Is it better than the CRV? Those are the two that you're really going to compare it against. Maybe the Bronco Sport. Um, it's more expensive, I think, than the Subarus, than the off-road, than the Wilderness Subarus. And I don't know if it's, it's a little bit nicer inside than the Subarus are. So you might feel like that's worth the trade-off. In my opinion, the Sportage is pretty good now, despite the looks being kind of polarizing. But I don't don't see it. I, I have a hard time seeing it over the CRV. I have a hard time seeing it over the Rav Four. Although I don't think the Rav Four can do as much off road, even with the TRD setup. But you know, I just don't. I, I, unless you really need to go off road, I just don't see the advantage of a of a Sportage over Rav Four or CRV. So. Kia's taking a step in the right direction, but I still think they have a little bit of work to do. And it would be good. It, it has a lot more value proposition in the LX um, trim ranges for sure, because I, I got curious while you were talking and I thought, 38 grand, what else can you get at Kia? Because usually it, the top of one bumps up against the next, right? Which would, mm-hmm. in this case would be the would be the Sorento. But not only can you get a Sorento for that price, you can get a Telluride, all-wheel drive Telluride for $38,000. So in base model, but that's a huge difference in vehicle. Yeah, it's so quite that's, the step up, isn't it? At least even in just terms of size and looks, right? Yeah, for sure. And with that, we're going to transition a little bit away from new car talk and talk about cars that go a lot faster and don't go off road at all, uh, except for when they crash. We're going to talk a little bit about the Formula One race that was in Miami recently, and you know, I don't know if you guys are big. F1 fans. I am generally not. I'm a casual racing fan and then I watch the Daytona 500 every year. I watch the Indy 500 and then I'll tune into NASCAR, IndyCar throughout the season here and there, depending on what other sport is on, what I'm doing that day, whatever. I'll watch bits and pieces of racing. I'll, I'll have a sort of an idea who's doing well in a given year and who's in the championship hunt, but I'm not watching every minute of every race. Now, F1 I typically don't watch because I'm not a loon who's going to get up at 3 or 4 in the morning to watch at the time difference and I don't really care to to deal with DVRing it or trying to find um, streams, streaming services. But I, I definitely wanted to check out the Miami race because it was in the middle of the afternoon and it was good timing uh, for those of us who live in America and Canada. You know, it was right in the heart of the day. And it was a new track and um, they haven't, I don't believe they've ever been to Miami before. So it was just very, because we know they've been to, to Austin, obviously. So it was very interesting for me to kind of check it out. I did not watch most of the pre-race. I was watching uh, my favorite baseball team. The, the game ended right before the race started. So I didn't see the the much talked about grid walk, which apparently was very cringeworthy and awkward. I missed <laughs> that. And I also, and this is a question for you guys, I did not see them say, gentlemen, start your engines. Apparently, they just don't do that with F1. I backed up the DVR a bit. I saw the national anthem, and it sounded like the cars were just already running. And then I kind of skimmed through the pre-race and all of a sudden they're in the cars and doing the formation lap so i don't know if i missed that or if they just don't do that um but i wanted to catch you guys thoughts and see if 
know, having two races in America this year and all the hype around Miami might get some people hooked into F1. I liked the fact there's no commercials. I didn't really particularly care. The racing was kind of boring because a lot of races are and then NASCAR IndyCar as well. I wanted to kind of get your guys' thoughts and see if you kind of came away, you know, as, as whether, no matter how old your casual fans are more into racing than I am, if you kind of came away with any new, new insights into F1. Well, the whole deal is that the FIA, you know, wants to kind of expand the brand, make it uh, give more mass appeal. And, and I think that's part of what Miami was all about. But it didn't go so great. Um, it, I mean, the race itself was fine. It was pretty standard. But uh, when they were, you know, doing testing and like practice, there was some corners they were com- the drivers were complaining about. Like no one was really happy. Uh, they kept skidding. There's a few skids off the track. Um, so there was a little bit of hubbub beforehand. The actual race was, I don't know. It, I feel like Formula One's getting really boring. But then I think about it, I'm like, wasn't it? Maybe it was always boring. I know we have fewer teams than, you know, other years. But um, Verstappen. It's a pass it. It is. And it, there was, it's not a, the Miami was not a super wide track. Um, Austin will be much better for, I think Austin will be more fun to watch. But. Um, Verstappen took a lead like right away and then he pretty much held it the whole race uh, until um, a safety car came out. I think it was a McLaren car lost a, a wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, it got clipped. I don't remember ex- the exact. Uh, I, I forget the driver, but he spun around. He was spun around. Right. He was out. So there was a caution and that kind of let everyone like tighten up a little bit. But it was pretty much just um, Ferrari like second and third the whole way and then the race ended it, it got a little exciting at the very end but nothing nothing real exciting happened um and then after the the you know the post race they interview all the drivers and then you know they attribute it to tires or you know the tar- the car's not quite tight enough and then you have to you know go back through the entire season to be like oh wait what were the problems um i mean i know mercedes was having some issues with mm-hmm. their dynamics and some other stuff but they're they they're getting it ironed out. Um, but yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a great race in terms of getting people involved. And I, and I think about when NASCAR was big and for better or for worse, it was when everybody was crashing all the time and I don't want people getting hurt. I don't want people crashing all the time, but there has to, they have to figure something else out. It needs to be more exciting because right now I feel like you're just sort of watching, um, the team set up the car and if the car really set up and like the luck's on your side and you happen to have a good driver, it's going to be great all the time. Like as stoked as I am to see Lewis Hamilton, like not winning all the time, um, which is probably my favorite thing about this season. (laughs) um, It's just not enough. And I don't know. I don't know if, you know, having Miami in the mix is going to get other people, other Americans more excited. Um, And I, like I said before, I think Austin is, is a much more, um, exciting track. It's fun to see any cars run it. For sure. For sure. And, Absolutely. And you make a good point, Matt, in that, in that I don't know if the way they marketed the race will help get Americans involved. Not just, it's obviously the racing was a little bit boring. Verstappen passed with the lead early and never let it go. But, um, you know, the marketing was, I, I didn't see a ton of advertising for it uh, on broadcast television. Most of what I heard was like on Twitter. And obviously, I follow car people on Twitter. So I, probably getting a weird sample selection there where people are more into cars and more into racing than the average person. And so, you know, I wasn't even really aware of the race until a couple of weeks ago. And all of a sudden, oh, hey, yeah, they're, gonna, they're in Miami. I can maybe go watch it. And then, um, 
you know, I did see tickets were expensive, and I, I did see there were obviously some celebrities in, in attendance, and it's Miami, fun town, party city, all that stuff. But it wasn't marketed heavily, and I wonder if using the British broadcast kind of just it looked like to <laughs> me like ESPN just bought Sky and just said, "Hey, we're going to have you come in here," and they were they weren't explaining stuff. You know, I follow racing a little bit, but I didn't know what DRS was, the drag reduction system, the thing that I, I had to look it up. I know that obvi- it was obvious to me without even before I looked it up that it, that it was something you could use to help pass, like the push to pass in, 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 in uh, IndyCar. But I had to look up, like, what does DRS stand for? And, you know, typically when you watch sports, especially a national broadcast that might bring in viewers who are casual viewers or new to the sport, you get a lot of explainers. And sometimes that can drive the longtime fans nuts because they already know this stuff. If you watch the Super Bowl, Indy 500, Daytona 500, the Indy 500 especially is good about this, at least when it was on ABC. I, I don't know if NBC has been quite as good over the past few years. They actually explain things to those who are who are new to the sport or who are casual fans and who know a few things but don't know everything. And even those of us who've been watching it for a long time can use a refresher here and there, right? Mm-hmm. The F1 race, the broadcast, they assumed that you were following F1 and were watching every race. And for the hardcore fans, that's great. For someone like a casual fan or trying to, or an American who's just like, I'll check this F1 thing out. I've never watched it before. Or someone who's watched Drive to Survive on Netflix who hasn't watched an actual race yet. Right. I think that, that not using, I think ESPN should use their own people and kind of, and they could have brought over some people who were experts. I have no problem with, you know, British accents or British folks who have covered the sport extensively. I actually like some of the charming British idioms that we don't really use, but it would be interesting. It would have been nice to explain some of the aspects of the sport to those of us who just don't watch F1 very often. And it would have been interesting if they would have marketed it better too. I, again, you know, I wasn't even fully aware of the race until a couple of weeks ago. And then the, the, the Danica Patrick intro was kind of weird too. They brought her in, you know, she's, Hey, someone you the, might recognize. Exactly. Right, one right. of the most recognizable faces in, in American, in terms of American drivers, attractive woman, retired not all that long ago she actually raced in florida at homestead with nascar all that stuff but the they didn't really do much to build up with the drivers of the cars the whole i watched the, it was a few minutes clip and it's basically like oh miami's really cool well we kind of know that right even if you've never been there you kind of know the reputation of the city so i i thought it was kind of the marketing was a little bit off and the racing might be boring you, you can't control that but the the marketing could have been a little bit better in my opinion I could see the lingo being a problem, too, because when you're talking about DRS, like if you had no idea what that was, like that kind of played an important factor late in the race because Perez Mm -hmm. was going to he would have closed the gap, but he never got close enough to the Ferrari team for uh, DRS to activate because the aero you can't change the aerodynamics until uh, I think you're within like a second of a person ahead of you. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and there were zones on the track that you could only use it too. See, I watch it, and I don't even know the exact precise rule, which I think is—I <laughs> think that's a part of like a problem with Formula One in general. Like, they make pretty sweeping rule changes all the time, and like so right now, one of the big big things is uh, Volkswagen Group wants to get involved in a couple of years. Well, I think right. 20, 2026. and they want—they're talking about fielding like two teams or at least getting both um, Audi and Porsche involved. But they're making special requests. They want to have the the financial cap changed a little bit, and then all the other co- company, all the other uh, teams and companies are getting mar- mad, uh, mad about intellectual property because they don't want like all this like uh, like IP stuff that Volkswagen's been working on, you know, forever to just you know be incorporated into whatever team they get tacked onto, um, or if if they build if they start doing their own stuff, 
uh, allowing them to use that and being like, well, that's not technically part of the development cap. Um, so we're still within budget. So there, there's always like bickering between the teams about this money stuff now. And it's, I don't know, it's just not fun. It's not a fun way to enjoy racing and it's, it's not working for me. And I don't think, uh, I think if they stay the course, they're not going to make the kind of headway in North America that they were hoping for. Yeah. And also I think too, just to kind of, I don't want to keep harping on this point too much, but it's really is true. I also feel like we talk about DRS being something that we didn't know what it was. There's also, I just feel like in general, F1 feels unapproachable to um, to the non-fan. Another thing that I picked up on was that towards the end of the race, when Max Verstappen was was winning, my lady friend asked me, she was watching the race with me, and she asked me, you know, what engine does it does it use? Is Ferrari, McLaren, whatever? Honda. She's not, a car, she's not a car person, but she knows a little bit about cars. She knows the companies, at least. And I said, well, I don't know. And I looked it up, and I, I couldn't even quickly find that on Google. I had to, like, dig for a minute or two. See, it was Honda. And, and now, Matt, you know off the top of your head because you actually follow it, but I didn't. And I, th- I thought that, like, that's kind of weird, too. If you're Honda, you want your name out there, right? You want you want it known. Because when you first Google, like, what Verstappen's team name is, it goes, it says Red Bull. It goes by the sponsor. And that, and does, like, you go, but if you watch IndyCar, they show you who's running Chevy engines and who's running Honda engines. Now, obviously, those engines have very little to do with production cars, but at least you see which company is involved. And I, I feel like F1 could just make some subtle tweaks to really make that more clear. If you want to jump into it and you want to say what, what driver is running, what car, what chassis, what engine that would help yeah. as well. Yeah. Cause uh, you, you know, Chase Elliott's driving a Chevy, right? Or, you know, <laughs> Denny Hamlin's driving a Toyota. Yeah. Or I get you. Chevy body. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mr. Guy, what, what, were, what were your thoughts? You've been kind of silent on this topic. I didn't know if you had a chance well, to watch the since, race or not. I, I was, um, interested to see you know miami on the schedule because i mean we've all played vice city but you know if you don't know much about miami that's (laughs) that's probably the extent of it right and the gridwalk you talk you mentioned that off the top the gridwalk with i mean martin brundle is a national treasure and he's you know been involved in f1 for a gazillion years but the celebrities on the grid did not know who he was which made for a hilarious atmosphere <laughs> mm-hmm. um, there was one conversation he tried to have with venus williams and there was like five se- there was like five seconds of silence at the end she was like oh you're still here <laughs> leave me alone whoever you are I, I heard he mistook pat mahomes for or he mistook a, a college basketball player for pat mahomes and it was not this pat is mahomes. true this is true but the whole thing i mean who knows if this will turn into I, I like Monaco, not because it's such great racing anymore, um, but just because of the atmosphere, just because mm-hmm. of the you know the, the the history behind it. And I know they had a fake marina at this uh, Miami track, right? But real boats. Who knows? I mean, Miami Miami might have a similar appeal if it stays on the schedule for a little while. Yeah, I, and I, I do think. I do think Miami's reputation as a party city had yeah. a little bit to do with it, yeah. maybe a lot. And in fact, it's probably pretty easy to fly to from international destinations. I would imagine I've flown through Miami a couple of times. I've been to Miami once. Mm-hmm. Um, I've not been to South Beach, which is kind of crazy, but uh, I would imagine it's not hard to fly to from other countries. So it really isn't. We might see Miami on the schedule going forward. I, I've heard, I think there's a Las Vegas, something scheduled in Vegas in the future. I, I Mm-hmm. Not sure if it's set in stone or not, but maybe they're not. And that Vegas would be another another place where the partying atmosphere, I think, would make the race kind of 
can't I can't right wait. in. Yeah. I can't wait for that grid walk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. The, the first uh, first Elvis impersonator that Martin Brundle encounters would be very interesting. <laughs> uh, right. and I, I'm pretty sure Vegas also. Just as a, an aside, I think Vegas is uh, next year. Oh, okay, so that sounds right. Yeah. Year. I'm not. I don't. I don't. Don't quote me on that. Even though I just said it, but. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that's it. Now we're quoting you on it. Sorry. Right. Well, I can't, I can't go back now. I no, can't I think just you're delete. Right. I can't just you're delete right, this. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's enough F1 talk for now, and we'll see how things go in Texas later this year. We'll take a quick break and be right back on the Truth About Cars podcast. Welcome back to the T-Tech Podcast. My name is Tim Healy. I am the managing editor of the Truth About Cars. It's T-Tech.com, T-T-A-C.com, or the truthaboutcars.com. We spent the first part of today's podcast talking about the Ford Lightning and the 2023 Kia Sportage and the F1 race that took place recently in Miami. And we're going to end on what we've been doing. The, all these podcasts so far is picking... We've been doing five-year intervals. We'll have to mix it up pretty soon. But we've been doing... a our favorite cars of certain years, we've kind of come, we've kind of working backwards. I think we started with 30 years ago or 20 years ago. I can't, I think it was 30. And now we're working it back. We're down to 15 years ago, which is coincidentally when I started in the automotive journalism business. Uh, so that's kind of like, I'm kind of like having more memories than I did. And I'm also just obviously a little bit older. I just have more memories of cars from that time. And so, you know, that wasn't that long ago for, for, for all of us. So we're going to go look at what we think were the best cars of 2007 and, Matt Posky, I'll have you start off. Well, as usual, I have two. One is a real choice, and then one is like a fantasy choice where it really wasn't the best car. Um, and the fake one is is the Dodge Magnum because uh, that was the last year. That was the last year they made them. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always, always loved that car. I, I remember driving one once, and I was like, "Wow, these are some. This is a not a lot of headroom, and these windows are <laughs> real small." Um. But yeah, I don't know. I just loved it. I, I thought it was kind of funky and cool. Um, it kind of paved the way for you know more muscle from Dodge. But uh, my real pick is the Honda Fit, which uh, I I had uh, a second gen, which is where this one would fit in, mm-hmm. uh, two thousand seven. And uh, I drove that thing into the ground. They're slow. They're not. Um, they're spacious for, you know, what they are, but they're not, you know, I'm sure they're horrible in a crash. Uh, it was kind of noisy on the highway. It had a lot of shortcomings, but you know what? I'd never cared. It was, it was pretty much enjoyable to drive all the time. Even when you just had it, you know, flat out on the highway to, to pass somebody. But, uh, I always, always, uh, like I never was mad to be in the car. Like I never felt like it was, a uh, like an economy car, it felt it was kind of fun to drive, and I know it got it got a lot, a lot of praise back in the day. People liked it, and I I totally get why. Um, it averaged sometimes forty miles of the gallon, which was great Jeez. when you were broke, uh, which mm-hmm. I was. I was definitely broke at the time, which <laughs> is why I was driving a Honda Fit, um, and uh, it it did a lot. I think it only made like one hundred and ten horsepower, but it it every one of those uh, horses were on crack. It felt like. <laughs> And so much space in those. Yeah. yeah, you could really haul a lot. Um we we 
we use it all the time as a, as a, just sort of like the the go to anytime we needed to, to drag anything. Yeah, I had I had my Crown Victoria still at the time too. So, um, despite being utterly massive in comparison, <laughs> like it, it was totally you couldn't use it to haul, to carry anything that wouldn't fit in the trunk. And yeah, yeah the Honda Fit would it swallow up almost almost anything. It was something to do with the design of the fuel tank, if I remember correctly, the way that they had it designed under the front seats or something like that. The yeah, it was, back seats. it was pushed up, and then the way that the seats folded in, it, it made yeah. like a totally flat floor, which, awesome. I mean, you see that a lot on crossovers today, but back then it was it was like a miracle. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember I was uh, a few years ago, I was uh, driving a Ford uh, Transit Connect, and... Um, it was the it was the previous generation, so it, the the seats don't fold flat on the passenger uh, model. Okay. Uh, so it had that kind of little where it's like the seats fold down, and then they kind of you know there's a little incline going up towards the driver's seat. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, you know what, the fit had this figured out like eight <laughs> years earlier. <laughs> it wasn't even a bad looking car. Like I kind of liked the headlights. Like it was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Um. It, it, I didn't. They had that burnt orange color that I wasn't a huge fan of, but that's the one you see everywhere. Oh, I remember that. Yes, I yes. remember you see them in white, and I was like, "Yeah, this looks like a, you know, an imported like Civic Si," <laughs> <laughs> which it obviously wasn't. I'm sure if you drove them back to back, you wouldn't think so. But, but yeah, I just I don't know. It was just a great car, and it, it was uh, it was it took abuse really well, which I should use this as an opportunity to announce that uh, I'm soon to be in possession of a 1998. Toyota Corolla. Um, really? Yeah, I'm really excited to see how uh, long that lasts. But I, I just, I just love those cars. It just, they kind of, they constantly defying the odds. Like, mm. and, and despite having really one of the worst kind of spec sheets you can you can imagine, uh, still, still fun to drive. Um, the, the steering was, it, it was the only, you know, it was, it was slow in a straight line and, and buzzy mm. when you, when you really pushed it. But um, it didn't make the it didn't make a terrible sound, and it handled really well. Like steering was real responsive, turn in was great. Um, you could if you really were being wild, you could even get lift off oversteer. <laughs> while you had it stuffed full of tables and chairs. Yeah, stuff <laughs> you're moving uh, between apartments for the third time that year. That year, we've <laughs> mm-hmm. all been there, Matt. Yeah, I was in college at the time, so it was you know nothing was nothing in my life was nailed down at the time. So I was I should I had to be ready to go anywhere else at a moment's notice. At a moment's notice, yes. <laughs> well, my pick for 07 is kind of in the middle of those, at least in terms of some power outputs, and it's the 2007 Mazda Speed Six, and I, mm. I like larger sedans, and that one I think was a pretty slick i don't know how many years they made them two years three model years someone in the comments will correct us i'm sure um but they made 270 horsepower right they had the turbo 2.3 liter 280 foot pounds of torque six-speed manual so i think that that would be that would be one of my choices from 2007 absolutely and it looked decent too or at least i thought they did i'm trying to look up to see how long they did for the for the second gen. How many yeah, years? I keep thinking of the Mazda Speed 3 when you say Mazda Speed 6. I, I remember that car was around, but for yeah. whatever reason, I've got a mental block for the larger car, and I keep thinking of the 3. If I remember correctly, that Mazda Speed 6 was the last of the outgoing kind of hatchback sedan generation. Yeah. And then the, next, the, the, the next 6 came in, and 
a year or two later, I want to say it was a 2009 model year, but it launched in 2008. Sounds better, And right. that one did not have, that was the end of Mazda Speed for the 6. That's right. And then... Mazda Speed hung around in the 3 for a couple more years uh, until the more, uh, into the 2010s, I think, but but not uh, not on the 6. I think you're right. And it was all-wheel drive, which was unique at the time. Yeah, right? it was, in that, yeah. You know, in that segment, at least. So I liked it. We had um, the first one. My wife and I got married. We had a Mazda six. It was non-turbo, but it was. It did have the manual transmission, and it was a hatchback. And Mazda didn't um, swallow quite as much cargo as your Fit, but it certainly was a lot better than a sedan. Put it that way. I had a Lincoln Mark Seven at the same time too, and that was just horrible at space efficiency inside. So the <laughs> so the Mazda six hatch was like a breath of fresh air for putting stuff in. Yeah, I always I, I, I there's a reason people kind of who like wagons and um, long hatchbacks like exactly. them. It, it's just because it, they just work. They do. I, I hate crossovers, and I, I totally get why people have them because eventually you need to haul something, and mm-hmm. why not be able to if you have the option? Yeah, and it makes the argument now. So you know, let's get a, a Mazda three hatch instead of the Mazda CX thirty, right? I would recommend the three hatch over the CX thirty for that exact reason. It's lower to the ground. It's got better driving dynamics, but it can still haul a bunch of stuff. So, what do you got, Tim? You got a whole bunch of cars, I'm sure. I uh, like Matt. I have two. I and I'm cheating a little bit because I believe both of them are actually 2008 model year for the first model year, but I believe they both launched in 07. Certainly, I remember working on them. In my first automotive journalism job, and I certainly remember, um, you know, reading about them as an enthusiast. Cool. The 2008 Dodge Challenger and the 2008 Jaguar XF. The nice. I could be wrong on the model years. They may have actually been oh, there may have actually been oh sevens. I I, I, I remember the 08s being kind of oh, 08s stuck in my head for whatever reason. But uh, the the XF was for me it was all about exterior styling, mm-hmm. which I thought mm-hmm. was a sexy looking car. It was the first time in a while Jaguar had made a good looking car after going through some doldrums, um, uh, you know, during the odds. And, and I mm-hmm. think that was during the, the bad years of when Ford had, you know, an interest in, in Jaguar and involvement in Jaguar. And then, you know, the kind of, the XF was the first step. And I still think the Jaguar cars to this day, over over that past 15 years, they generally look good. They don't always drive well and reliability can be an issue. But <laughs> even today's lineup, I think, looks good. The I-Pace, even the SUVs, the F-Pace, the, uh, the E-Pace, um, you know, they're generally not ugly vehicles. The uh, the XF looks good. I'm sorry, not the XF. The um, what's the, the two door roadster? The, I'm blanking on the name. The, oh, F-type. the F-type. The F-type. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the XF still looks good to this day, even though you know it's a bit of an older design. So, even the XE, the three series competitor, that kind of flopped. That was actually not a bad looking vehicle either. So the XF was sort of the start of that. Hey, Jaguars look good again. <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. then the Challenger. I don't think it really needs a lot of explanation. You know, the first. Bring back a historic name, the first real muscle car to kind of compete with the, with the Mustang and the Camaro in a very long time. Dodge's first real answer to the pony car class, but you don't really call it a pony car because it's bigger. Obviously, has a usable back seat in the way the Camaro and Mustang don't. It's based on a bigger. It's based obviously on a, on a larger platform. But the Challenger, you know, that, when that came back, and it's it's still it still looks good and hasn't changed much in styling since then. And there's a reason why it hasn't because it still looks really good and it still works. Yeah, it still works. And, um, you know, it's still to this day, it's, it's an awesome car to drive, at least if you're going in a straight line, they they are kind of handling wise, not as enjoyable as a Mustang Camaro because they're just heavier and bigger, 
but, but they've but Dodge has done some pretty cool things with them over the years, and we don't have to talk about it. We can spend all day on Hellcats and 392 scat packs and all that stuff, but you know, uh, that was another car, and that was another car that was just really like, man, this thing just looks so cool. And of course, the bonus is that it not only did it look cool, but with the right engine, it went fast, you know, and sounded awesome. So, those are my two, those are pretty cliched answers. I understand that, but um, you know. The, 2007 was a weird year because you had some cool stuff, but you also had some really crappy cars on the road. You know, that's the Dodge Caliber was in its prime, right? Uh, you, know, you had Kia's Ronda, <laughs> you had Kia's Ronda, which was actually a really good people mover, but kind of ugly and boring and bland. So you had this kind of, you had a lot of misfires too. I, I was at the um, the Cadillac XLR, I think, was right around that time where it was kind of like the, the Cadillac Corvette oh, that yeah. totally failed, right? The Chrysler Crossfire, which could have been a cool car if they'd done a little, if they'd done a little bit better with it. PT Cruisers, I believe, were still on sale at the time. So you had some, hmm. you had some no. real weirdness in the late aughts. You know, you had some really cool stuff, some really bland stuff, and you had no. some really just awful cars. And I think, you know, that was kind of the last gasp of the really bad, cynical cars, in my opinion. And people could take issue with this, but in my opinion, I think. Since about 2010, maybe a few years after, there haven't been too many truly awful cars on the market. There's been a lot of bland, boring cars that just get you from point A to point B, and that's mm-hmm. all they do, and they're not particularly exciting. But there haven't been a lot of like just terrible cars. There have been some companies that have reliability issues or certain models, whatever. That always happens. But you don't have the Dodge Calibers anymore. You don't have mm-hmm. that Jeep Patriot. The really bad Jeep Compass. The current Jeep Compass is actually, you know, somewhat competent now. Um, you don't have the Jeep Liberty anymore. You don't and have Cobalt and the Cobalt, which, unless you have an SS version, pretty much stunk. You don't <laughs> have, you know, you don't really, even the Jeep cars, for the most part, are pretty good. There's, there's a few bad cars out there still. Obviously, the Mirage is still around and still kind of stinks. And, you know, the Chevy Spark just died, and I, I, the last remaining Sparks were no fun to drive, and you know, there's a few other things. Whatever, whatever's left of Fiat, and the Fiat 500L was just pretty, pretty terrible. But there are fewer really, truly awful cars than there used to be. And 2007 was kind of when the the last gasp of the really awful cars. And, and part of that was, and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds of the auto bailouts here because that's kind of off topic. But if you guys remember right. At that time, the especially the big three, the Detroit three, were really focused on trucks and really weren't putting a lot of effort into mid-sized cars and smaller cars. Yep. And then all of a exactly. sudden, Chevy, Chevy, and I actually almost chose this because Chevy did a nice job with it, was the Malibu, the 2008 Malibu, which was not as good as the Accord or the Camry, but was for the first time in a long time, General Motors had a sedan that was at least competitive, competitive with the Accord yeah. and Camry. And the Ford's Fusion got a little bit better in the late aughts. Um all of a sudden, you know, right before gas prices spiked and the recession hit and the, all the bailouts, all that stuff, all of a sudden there was the big three and the Troy three starting to care about cars again. Pontiac G8 came out around that time. That was another one I had thought about for this, although, again, that was a 2008 technically. Pontiac GTO is, was out there as a sports car. And, and there was some other, the Chevy SS, I think, came a little bit later. All of a sudden the market started to turn and the, the, the big three started investing again a little bit. Um, in cars that were actually competitive with the Accords and the Camrys of the world, and, and Hyundai and Kia also improved their pro- started to improve their product at that time too. You know, Hyundai and Kia are now doing pretty well, 
at the time they were still sort of the value brand. They weren't necessarily giving you a lot of interesting op, uh, options. There weren't a, back then there wasn't a Kia or Hyundai that really would have caught my interest the way there is now. So, you know, that's a, 2007 is a really interesting time for cars, in my opinion, just because you had all these outgoing crappy models and incoming models that were replacing them that were, if not good, they were better, much better. They're still pretty, they're pretty good. Maybe not good enough necessarily to leapfrog the, 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 the Cords, Camrys, whatever of the world. But the, the market really changed a lot right around that time. And then, of course, the recession came along and it killed a few really good cars and it also killed some really bad cars. Um, you know, killed brands and killed Pontiac off and took, so there are a lot of bad Pontiacs like the G6 and the Torrent and all that stuff. Just, you don't want to remember those, those vehicles. But then it also killed the G8. So there was kind of, you know, it's just a really weird time in, in the automotive industry. And then uh, a year or two later, as companies came out of, as companies came out of it and as the economy started to recover, mm-hmm. you really started to see an improvement in the, in the, across the board, I think. So I'm kind of glad we're talking 2007 because it's a very interesting year. Yeah, a lot of the trend you can see a lot of the trends that are pretty commonplace now, like especially with like crossovers. Like I'm thinking about uh like the Toyota Matrix was kind of yes. know, their crossover attempt of the Corolla. Mm-hmm. And you can't and, and like the PG Cruiser and stuff like that. Like you're seeing sort of those cars that a lot of people laughed at at the time, um, because maybe the execution wasn't, you know, just so. Uh, paving the way for cars now that are really popular and you see everywhere. And, you know, I, I, I'm not going to argue that, you know, small crossovers are fun to drive, but boy, oh boy, am I glad to be in, you know, one from now than like, you, like an early <laughs> compass? Like, no, thank you. No. <laughs> not on your life. No, I had a Fisher-Price interior and a not great engine, but now not so bad. Yeah, yeah. I could actually, I think the three of us could spend all day talking about that particular year overall in the market. Maybe it's a future podcast topic, but for now, we're going to wrap it up and uh, we will, uh, you know, see you online at ttech, ttech.com. So you can type in ttac.com into your, into your browser or the truth about cars, spell that out. And uh, either way, you'll get to ttech and check out our latest car reviews and news. And again, this is uh truth about cars podcast i'm here with matt posky and matthew guy my name is tim healy i'm the managing editor of the truth about cars.com and thank you for listening and we'll uh we'll be back soon